And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the text of your word. Thank you that it's living, it's, it speaks, it changes, it saves sanctifies it's a means in the hand of your spirit to do his work and therefore we value the reading of it we value the proclamation of it we value every part of it lord including this jonah chapter two walk us through it by your grace we pray in jesus name amen so we began the study last week with these words. The story of Jonah is not about a big, scary fish who swallows sinners as a judgment from God, but a big, gracious God who saves sinners from the judgment of God. And if there was any doubt to that reality, chapter 1 thrust us quickly into this vivid illustration of that gospel as Jonah is sacrificed to save the sailors aboard the ship. And we clarified that the gospel correspondence in chapter 1 was in the ratio more than it was in the people themselves. Meaning, in chapter 1, the gospel illustration is the one man sacrificed to save the many. But in the gospel, the parties themselves are reversed. The ratio stays the same. In the gospel, it's still the one sacrificed to save the many. But the reason Jonah functions as a type is because in the gospel, there is a greater reality to which he points. I think Paul himself testifies of this in Romans 5-7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. We could say, that's Jonah. He's the guilty one. He's the one sacrificed to save, in the context of the story, the many innocent ones. The escalation, however, is in verse 8 of Romans 5. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ the innocent one died for us. So, in Jonah, 
It was the guilty party, the one guilty party reluctantly sacrificed to save the many innocent ones from death. In the gospel, it is the one and only innocent one willfully sacrificed to save the many guilty ones. And where we ended last week, the sacrifice has been made. Jonah has been cast out into the sea. That the sacrifice, inasmuch as it foreshadowed the greater sacrifice of Jesus, that the sacrifice of Jonah appeased God in Christ is clear, and that the sea becomes instantly still. And the sailors on the ship, and even the ship itself, are suddenly, instantly safe, spared from death and destruction. And when all goes still in the scene, and the camera remains on the sailors, they are found fearing God, worshiping God, offering up sacrifices to God, and vowing vows to God. And while all is well with them, all of the chaos of the previous scene has now shifted its attention, its focus on Jonah. And he's drowning in the sea. He's drowning, obviously, physically, but he's also drowning spiritually. If you remember last week, we, we traced the downward trajectory of Jonah's life on the run from God. Again, on their own, none of these sentences are necessarily a big deal, but taken together, Jonah's physical descent, marked in Scripture as down, 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 is meant to communicate a deeper spiritual descent. Jonah is no longer the bold, obedient prophet proclaiming God's mercy and restoration to his own people like we see him doing in 2 Kings 14. In Jonah, God has commissioned Jonah to a people that he deems less worthy of God's mercy than his own sinful people, and Jonah chooses to attempt to escape his calling by running away. But in running away physically, where every step of the way is marked by further descent, the way that physical descent is communicated in Scripture, in Jonah chapter 1, is communicating that his heart was also descending in coordination with his every physical step. So he went, chapter 1 verse 3, down to Joppa. Further down into the ship, even further down into the inner part of the ship. And when the sailors hurl him overboard, it was even further down off the ship and into the sea. And where the chapter ends, the presumption is that's it for him. Sheol is his new abode, the realm of the dead. And there's this, um, I don't know if you picked up on it, there's this eerie, it's an eerie silence that happens between verse 15 and verse 16 of chapter 1. The pace and the intensity from right out the gate in chapter 1 just dies instantly. The narrative slows down and the scene becomes still and silent with the storm and the sea once Jonah is cast overboard. I, so I reread chapter 1 this past week, and here's the thought I had. So, so let me just walk you through it. Read verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And then I read verse 16. Then the man feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. And it's, it goes from fear and chaos and judgment in one verse to mercy and calm and worship in the next verse. And I read those two verses back to back again, and I thought, 
kind of in, in movie terms, I thought, how could you take the camera off Jonah? Even for a second and of all places right here. So the men on the ship, they're not only safe, but we don't know them. These are nameless Men, we have no emotional attachment to the sailors on board the ship, but Jonah is the one that we've been led to follow every step of the way. He's the one for whom we want to see how this story unfolds and turns out. And practically speaking, he's the one that just got hurled off the ship into the raging sea. So while all is well now above the sea, all remains chaos and raging below. So we want the camera to follow him. And in chapter 2, it does. Um, If I may, before we move on to chapter 2, I just want to offer two short reasons that um, I think, I think, which means it's not gospel truth, two short reasons that I think the Holy Spirit, who is the, don't be offended by this, the ultimate cinematographer of Jonah, did not immediately follow Jonah into the sea with his camera. I think one of them is verse 16. That he wanted us to see that God's purpose in letting Jonah run was to save. So in Jonah's judgment into the sea, God physically saves the sailors. And we would have known that just by a simple sentence somewhere along the way that the sea stilled and everyone on board makes it safe to Tarshish, kind of similar to what we see when Paul sailed to Rome in Acts 28 and a similar storm threatens similar consequences upon the crew. And we're simply told in Acts 28, and so it was that all were brought safely to the land and the story moves on, but the camera stays on Paul. He's the main character. But in Jonah, the Spirit's camera stays above the water. Not only to assure the reader that all on board were going to be mercifully spared and saved from the judgment of the sea, but to illustrate for us as well the effect of God's saving grace on those who were formerly destined for judgment and death. When God mercifully saves, His saved people fall down and worship Him like we see happening at the end of chapter 1. There, there's, a, there's a ton of debate, unnecessary debate, as is often the case, about the sincerity of the sailors' worship. So, was Jonah's God now just one of their many gods? Or would this be short-lived? And, and um, I'm just saying, I don't care. Not because I don't care about them, but because I will never know the answer to that question. And I don't think we'll ever know the answer to that question because it's not the ultimate purpose of the text. What is clear? So what we're supposed to know, what we're supposed to focus on is the picture that transcends the story of Jonah. That when God's grace saves people from judgment here, primarily physical. But Jesus says this whole story is a sign that points to a greater reality in him. So the picture's physical, but it's pointing to something spiritual, greater. When God's grace mercifully saves people from judgment and death, the effect of his saving grace upon sinners is that they worship him. And brothers and sisters, does that, not, does that picture not transcend the story of Jonah 
and explain ultimately why every one of us are here this morning. We are here worshiping together because we confess together that God's grace in Christ has mercifully spared us from judgment and death. And when you ask how, (laughs) brothers and sisters, we don't even have to leave the book of Jonah to find the answer. We confess through the types and the shadows and the book how because another was judged in our place. The one was judged to bring the salvate to bring salvation to the many. We talked about that last week. I think that there's another reason the camera stays above the water before it goes below the water and that's because God wants us to hold our breath with Jonah for a minute while we wait to see what he will do because his saving purposes are not yet finished. His saving grace was not exhausted above the water on the sailors. And I love the way that this commentator, Brian Estelle, says it. He says, in the silence, there is a sense in which we too are dragged beneath the surface of the water, uncertain and holding our breath for what will happen next. And what happens next, nobody who has not read the story of Jonah would have predicted, but nobody who knows the nature of our God would be surprised by. What happens next is our God saves. Again, the God who appointed a great wind upon the sea to judge Jonah now appoints a great fish in the sea to save Jonah. What I'm saying is, it was always his purpose to save him. It's why he let him run. It's why he lets you run. So that his saving grace would come to you, a sinner, so that you would receive it and fall down and worship him and praise the glory of his grace forever. I want to say the first part of that again. Because how you process this part of the story is really important. This has to be um, the most talked about fish in the history of fish. So let me give you a a, a real, non-exaggerated, so true story, example. I had to resist the urge to go way overboard. And um, and I'm sharing it. And I think that a number of you may remember this story because if I'm remembering the context correctly, um, a number of you were there. And no, this is not when Jason preached on Jonah at Christ Fellowship a few years ago. This is back in college days. I I don't remember who the speaker was. And actually, it's probably a good thing. But one of the most memorable sermons I've ever heard, not just in Jonah, my entire life, was from the book of Jonah. And, and m- much of the story centered here, where we are in the text, chapter 1, verse 17, or chapter 2, verse 1, depending on what you've got in front of you. Uh, the, so the guy preaching was trying to illustrate hell in the story of Jonah. And the way that he tried to illustrate hell was doing a bunch of outside scientific research on what the temperature would have been inside the belly of this whale. And what that would have done to 
Jonah's mind, Jonah's body, Jonah's skin for three days and for three nights. Basically cooking him, melting his skin, none of which does scripture confirm actually happened. Fish on, the emphasis is mercy. But the guy proceeds on and on about the fish, then vomiting Jonah's charred body out onto the sand in the sun. And what a repulsive spectacle Jonah would have been in Nineveh when he finally decides to obey and preach there, so much so then that the people who repent do so out of fear that Jonah's God would do the same thing to them. So I preface this by saying... How you interpret this point of the story is going to take you one of two directions. One, a very good gospel-centered way. You're going to see the gospel, God's salvation through a fish, pointing us to a greater reality in Jesus. Three days, three nights. Or, you interpret it wrong, you're going to go the opposite direction. So in chapter 4, shows Jonah angry because God removes the shade plant. It's once again, in this guy's story... Because God had fried him once by his judgment in the belly of the fish, and he's doing it all over again because he still doesn't get it, and he's doing it by baking him again in the sun. I'm, 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 just, I'm telling you, it was awful. It was, and I'm not exaggerating his language there at all. It was so awful that of all the sermons I heard in college, think about it, five days a week in chapel, once on Wednesday nights at church, three times on Sunday, I can remember like three. And that's one of them. Honestly, probably the most vivid of them. For all the wrong reasons. I remember an angry, vindictive God who stalks sinners to punish them and does not relent and a terrifying fish that God uses in the process, and a pathetic prophet that you actually feel somewhat bad for after all that he's been through, and then people who insincerely repent out of fear, all of which I'm saying are the exact opposite emphases in the book. And the preacher's main point in the sermon was to warn us college students against running. Why? Because we might end up like Jonah. Because this angry, vindictive God is just waiting, stalking. Waiting for sinners so that he could unleash his punishment. And and while, (laughs) while there is a degree to where I absolutely want to affirm to you, dear brother, dear sister, it is a foolish thing. It's a foolish thing it's a foolish thing to run from God what is so foolish about running is not because he is an angry stalking God who just waits for opportunities to satisfy his justice by killing sinners but because he is a gracious God who has satisfied his justice by pouring out his judgment on another namely his son So in running, you run not from an angry God who wants to punish you, but from a gracious God who wants to save you. So running is insane, not because God will find you and use all means at his disposal, and then some, to satisfy his desire to judge you as his ultimate end. But 
Because he will find you and use all means at his disposal and then some to satisfy his desire to save you because his justice has already been satisfied. But the insanity of sinners is that we make that process unnecessarily painful every time by running many even to their own eternal destruction. When they reject the truth that God's justice has been satisfied in the death of his son for all who will believe. But winds and seas and fish are among the many endless means of grace at God's disposal to save his people through judgment, just like the cross and the empty tomb. Here's how it works. Delivered up to death at the cross for judgment, delivered up for our trespasses, and raised to life from the grave for our justification. Perhaps by now, you'll agree with Greg Haslam when he says men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they failed to look at the great God in the story of Jonah. So we come back to the statement that I said I wanted to repeat about ten minutes ago. The God who appointed a great wind upon the sea to judge Jonah now appoints a great fish in the sea to save Jonah. In scripture, the sea is the judgment. The fish is his salvation. Both were from God and the one was his means to the other, just like justice and mercy, on display most vividly at the cross and the empty tomb. God's purpose was not to kill Jonah for his rebellion, but to save him from or even through his rebellion. So as verse 17 says, or as chapter 2, verse 1 says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And it's here that Jesus made the most obvious connection between the book of Jonah and the gospel. So when the scribes and Pharisees demand a sign from Jesus that he is the son of David, Jesus says the sign has already been given. And the sign among many is in the book of Jonah. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And if you can resist the obsession over the math, just like the fish, which causes people to miss the point, if you can resist that obsession, Jesus is foretelling the scribes and the Pharisees that Jonah's deliverance from the belly of the fish is the sign that foreshadows the coming greater reality of his resurrection from the dead. Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, and he came out alive. Jesus would be three days in the grave and would come forth alive. And Jesus cites the Ninevites' repentance that we'll see in the coming chapter next week at Jonah's preaching, following Jonah's coming forth alive from the belly of the fish as a witness against his own generation, whom he says would persist in their rejection of him and his people following his resurrection from the dead. So why did God unfold this story this way? Well, the truth is... 
There are probably 10 billion reasons. But a few of them that we know for sure, as we've now read the first 17 verses of this book, are, get them up there while I take a drink of water, if you can read it. One, to reveal his saving grace to the sailors on board the ship and to Jonah in the sea. Two, to foreshadow the gospel by sacrificing the one to save the many. Three, to reveal his power to save through his appointed means. In the story of Jonah, it's a fish, it's a sign that points to a greater reality. And four, to foreshadow the death and resurrection of Jesus through Jonah, being swallowed by the fish and coming forth alive after three days in the fish's belly. And I would probably word all of that a bit differently if I wrote it all over again because it feels really messy, but I think you get the point. Jesus is revealing the meaning of his hearers' own scriptures. And he's foretelling them that they will continue to reject their own scriptures by rejecting him, even after their own scriptures, which pointed to him, were fulfilled in him. And at the judgment, sinners from the ends of the earth will come forth and by their confession of Jesus as the Christ of God will condemn those who denied the designed greater reality of stories like Jonah and the great fish. And brothers and sisters, one of the reasons that we rehearse these stories is so that you see the sign in Jonah and the fish and believe. So that you see the sign in Jonah and the fish and believe for the salvation of your soul in the reality to which they pointed, which is Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures. You ask yourself from that infamous 1 Corinthians 15 text to which scriptures is, Jesus, is Paul referring to there? And now we confess from our previous study, well, we know Ruth for sure, Right? But now we're able to confess all over again. But add Jonah to the list now. And when Paul preaches from Ecclesiastes in two weeks, and then Adam, February 5th from Philemon, brothers and sisters, we'll add those to the list. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. And then, consistent with what we saw in the sailors in chapter 1, in response to God's saving grace in chapter 2, Jonah joins the number in the book who worship. The sailors sacrificed and made vows. Jonah prays a prayer of thanksgiving and praise. It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord from the belly of the fish. And the entire heart of the chapter is his prayer. The order in which everything falls is significant. Jonah prays from the belly of the fish, which on the one hand means this prayer is the result or it's the effect of God's saving grace on him. It's not the cause of God's saving grace on him. On the other hand, or from the other end, Jonah's prayer of thanksgiving from the belly of the fish happens before the fish spits him out alive on the dry land. 
telling us that Jonah locates his salvation rightly in God's mercy toward him by means of the fish rescuing him from the waters of judgment and death. As merciful as God's restoring Jonah's life and commission on dry land eventually is, his salvation is in the fish, not the dry land. Sinclair Ferguson clarifies even further. The deeper work of God took place not in the belly of the fish. In other words, not in the natural miracle of preservation, but in the heart of the prophet. Not in the realm of nature, but in the realm of grace. He says further, When Jonah cried to the Lord from the belly of the great fish, he did so not merely as a subject craving a hearing with his sovereign, but as a child, conscious of the chastisement of his father. So let's see this. Rather briefly, but let's see this. There's two parts to the psalm. Verses 2 through 7 tell Jonah's story and express his prayer. Or another way to think of it is, they show how, through God's judgments that led to salvation, Jonah arrived at prayer. Verses 8 and 9 are Jonah's confession and his praise, or another way to think of it is they show how Jonah, through God's saving grace, is brought to praise. Structurally, Jonah's psalm not only fits the pattern of other Thanksgiving psalms, but his psalm is actually filled with the words of other psalms. So, in Jonah, in his prayer, Jonah is Praying the Psalms, which Eric Metaxas, in his biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that I know many of you have read, says this, and I think it's amazing. Bonhoeffer linked the, the idea of Bartian grace with prayer by saying that we cannot reach God with our own prayers, but by praying his prayers, the Psalms of the Old Testament, which Jesus prayed. And in praying them, he says, we effectively piggyback on them all the way to heaven. Makes you want to read and memorize the Psalms, brothers and sisters. And if it were only a few references in Jonah's Psalm in Jonah chapter 2, I would note them for you. I'd work to develop them. But when I actually started to track through Jonah's prayer, it's literally every verse. And some verses, multiple psalms that he's citing in his prayer. It's an incredible example of somebody whose mind is saturated with scripture so much so that it, when it came time to desperately, urgently pray, Jonah knew exactly what to say. When it came time to praise, he likewise knew exactly what to say. In all of Jonah's descriptions here, he is identifying with others who lived to testify of God's saving grace. But, but there is a structure. He's following a pattern here, and it's the pattern that's re reflected all throughout the Psalms in those Psalms that are categorized as Thanksgiving Psalms. So it begins with a summary. It's verse 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. And the one thing that I just want to the important thing to note there is that belly of Sheol. 
to which he's referring is not the belly of the fish. It might seem obvious to equate the belly of the fish and the belly of Sheol and conclude that Jonah himself is referring to the fish as a judgment from God. But that's not what he's doing here, which is why I think the author even chooses a different word for the belly of Sheol than he uses in his references to the belly of the fish. But brother, sister, you don't need to know Hebrew to come to that conclusion. All you need to do is keep reading because his summary in verse 2, as Thanksgiving Psalms always do, turns to a description of the crisis from which he was saved and in Jonah's description he clarifies at what point he considers himself in the belly of Sheol and it's not the fish it's in the sea so let's just read through some of these descriptors verse 3 you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Verse 4, then I said, I am driven from your sight. When did he say that? Then I said, I am driven from your sight. Back to verse 3. When he was cast into the deep, into the heart of the seas, when God's flood surrounded him, and God's waves and billows passed over him. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. Somewhat of a confusing statement. Thankfully, he says it again in verse 7. And what he means by that statement, I think, is clarified in verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. So he's referring to prayer by that language. It unmistakably recalls the very thing he was trying to escape in chapter 1 when he ran away from the presence of God. So what do we conclude? We conclude God's temporal judgments upon Jonah were affecting in him. According again to Sinclair Ferguson. Not a higher degree of consecration, but a return to an earlier level of commitment. That Second Kings 14 level of commitment. Verses 5 and 6 are perhaps the most clear indication that it's the judgment of the sea that Jonah is considering his sinking down into Sheol rather than the belly of the fish. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went, there's another reference. Remember the downward trajectory? Four times so far, he says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. It's, scripture is portraying a further descent. It's physical, but there's a spiritual descent coordinating every step of the way along with it. And it's at that rock bottom that he testifies, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. You brought up my life from the belly of Sheol. How? By means of the fish. His crisis turns to prayer. 
turns to praise in verses 8 and 9. And what he says, he says now through experience. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Notice clearly what that does not say. He does not say those who pay regard to vain idols forsake steadfast love. He says those who pay regard to vain idols forsake what? Their hope in steadfast love. Why? Why is that important? It's important, brothers and sisters, because steadfast love pursues. Steadfast love hurls winds. Steadfast love sends storms and controls the casting of lots. Steadfast love appoints fish. And steadfast love saves, even saves, those who in their idolatry abandon hope. Which is what Jonah has just described. If I could take it a step further. Steadfast love, likewise, keeps covenant. And makes promises. And remains faithful to his covenant in his promises. So that in the fullness of time. What does steadfast love do? You could fill in the sentence. He sends forth his very own son. And steadfast love sends him to the cross. And causes him cry out his own cry of dereliction from the Psalms. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God's answer is to save. So that, as Jonah testifies in verse 9, all who fall under the grace of that steadfast love for their salvation would testify. But with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. All means at his disposal, brothers and sisters. All means and then some. Wind, waves, and fish for some. Radio broadcasts for others. Jesus Storybook Bible for others. But an old rugged cross for all where the one was sacrificed for the salvation of the many. Brothers and sisters, salvation belongs to the Lord and to the Lord alone. So with Jonah, let us offer up, as Hebrews 13 says, the sacrifice of thanksgiving in song. 
after we do so in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, salvation belongs to you and to you alone. Father, with glad hearts, as we've seen it again in Scripture, we confess that salvation belongs to you and you alone. Ordained before the foundation of the world. Accomplished in the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and reign of your Son. Applied effectually, relentlessly, from beginning to end, by the power of the Spirit, salvation belongs to the Lord. So, Lord, as is your stated purpose in Christ to exalt him and to glorify your name continue to save in our midst continue to save may the gospel as it has been proclaimed through your word be used by the spirit to do your will again and save <laughs> 